right, welcome back to Formate Arbitration. And today we're going to continue on with the just cause principles. <laughs> and let me start this one off. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta laugh about something. Uh, I have several friends that listen to this podcast, and they were talking about my last episode about the young man that was cussing everybody, the one that I said we had the explicit content. And they were like, "You got this." He came back to work. Hey, look, if I tell you that somebody came back to work, I'm not going to lie to you about it. They came back to work. So I pulled the case in case uh, the the arbitration site, if you want to look at it, it's C34135, 34135. It was before arbitrator Christopher Miles. It was back in uh, July of uh, 2019 was the date of the award. And I'll give you a little, and this will show you, uh, how I tried to to get these arguments in there, what I was talking about, the arguments that uh, management kept objecting to, but I did it in my opening. And uh, generally, openings are not objected to because it's just a statement. It's an opening statement. It's not evidence. It's not considered evidence. Now, I have objected to management's opening before when they tried to slide new argument in there just to put the arbitrator on notice. Hey, management's trying to put new argument in here. Uh They'll usually let them continue, and they'll say, you know, you can object during the hearing, but I want to go ahead and put it in the arbitrator's mind. We got some new argument. But I did that in this case because there were so many uh, new arguments. But I read my what he wrote down as my position, and to show you how I was trying to get it in there, and also I talked about tenure, talked about no prior discipline. Uh, so there are things that, that we were able to use to persuade the arbitrator to bring this young man back. Uh, he was a veteran uh, of, uh, he was over in Iraq. And so he had PTSD and uh, I caught management line about that. And that was one of the biggest things that helped us is uh, they chose to lie about not knowing about his PTSD. And I'll tell you about that, but I'll read you the union's position and uh, his decision because like I say if I tell you that the arbitrator brought somebody back I'm not gonna lie about it you know uh, look I've had 140 arbitrations I've lost 39 and so if I tell you I've lost something I've lost it you know if I tell you somebody came back they came back so had 140 cases I've lost 39 of those and all 39 have devastated me beyond belief uh, I hate losing more than I like winning. I hate losing. I hate it. Uh, I'd rather do anything than lose. So I've made sure that I'm not very good at it. And so 39 cases I've lost, and each one of those has devastated me beyond belief. So that being said, I'm going to read you the arbitrator's position. And this is what he took from my opening statement he said the union contends that the postal service did not have just cause to issue a notice of proposed removal to mr stroop charging him with unacceptable conduct it alleged it is alleged that on february 8 2019 mr stroop cursed and threatened the supervisor and postmaster on the back dock while loading parcels into his vehicle according to the union the removal action is so riddled with procedural due process violations that it is hard to comprehend how the case made it to arbitration now, that's me trying to slide them in there, trying to put them on notice. The union relies on, upon page 16.1 of the Joint Contract Administration Manual, in which it is confirmed that the supervisor is the one to initiate disciplinary action. 
That was one of the procedural due process violations I raised. This is also supported on page 16.9 of the JCAM, when it states that it is normally the responsibility of the immediate supervisor to initiate disciplinary action. Again, if y'all can remember in a past episode where I talked about normally, the word normally, trying to get that in there. In this case, it was the postmaster, not the immediate supervisor, who requested and issued the notice of proposed removal. That's me trying to slide one in there. In addition, the MPU, Mr. James Harrell, whom was the concurring official in this case, actively participated in the investigative interview. The union asserts that this is a blatant due process violation and that no thorough and objective investigation was completed, whereby the grievant could be provided his day in court. Now, that's what I was telling you about in the last episode. Harrell was the concurring official that wasn't caught. I tried to throw that in my opening, where they talk about... uh, his day in court. It goes on to state, the union argues that management's investigative interview of Mr. Stroop was inept at best and laughable at worst. It suggested that this was a fatal to the removal action issued to Mr. Stroop. That's me trying to get that in there where they just said, did you curse? And then in their notice of charges, they put all this language in there and that he was never given an opportunity to address. So that's me trying to slide all of these new arguments in on my opening, all these procedural due process violations. Uh, It goes on to state, the union also makes reference to Article 16, Section 1 and Section 115 of the M39 Handbook, wherein it states, in the administration of discipline, a basic principle must be that discipline should be corrective in nature rather than punitive. According to page 16.2 of the JCAM, that is an essential element of the just cause principle. The union submits that the Postal Service has violated every one of the above-cited provisions. The union emphasizes that Mr. Stroop has been employed as a city carrier for approximately 13 years and has never been disciplined. And that's what we hung our hat on a lot. Uh, That's tenure, and he has no prior discipline. It also maintains that Mr. Stroop made management aware of his PTSD due to his combat action while serving in the United States Army during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yet the Postal Service failed the grievance by never referring him to the Employee Assistant Program or sending him for a fitness for duty, whether that be physical or psychological examination. This is a travesty. Uh, And that's where I looked at the uh, investigative interview, and normally they'll say, are you aware of EAP? Do you need the number DAP? They never asked the guy that, so I try to hang on to that, knowing his uh, history with PTSD. Union contends that it was management's provocation on the day in question that led to Mr. Stroop being removed. He was provoked by Supervisor Hamilton, who yelled at him, and he was provoked by the postmaster, who pointed her finger at him. The party's joint statement on violence in the workplace demands mutual respect, not just from employees, but from management officials as well. The union notes that Mr. Stroop has never had an incident like this before, and it believes that he should have been referred to EAP. That is a recommendation set forth in the Mississippi District Zero Tolerance Policy. Based upon the above, the union requests that the grievance filed on behalf of Mr. Stroop be sustained, that the notice of proposed removal be rescinded, that Mr. Stroop be returned to work immediately, and that he may hold for all lost ways and benefits. So that was my position in my opening statement. I try to slide all of those new arguments in there, all those procedural arguments in there, uh, hoping that the arbitrator agreed with a lot of arbitrators and that you can raise procedural due process violations at any time. 
just like management can raise threshold issues or arbitrability issues at any time, even in arbitration for the first time. But he didn't go for it. He, d- he allowed none of those in there. But uh, this law is talking about the arrows and the quiver. Give the advocate as many arrows he, ha- he can in that quiver. Uh, he's going to use every single one of them. I promise you, if you put 100 in there, we're going to use all 100. Uh, if you put two in there, I'm only going to be able to use two. <laughs> and if I have, you know, another 90 available to me and they're not put in there, I can't use them. And this is the perfect example of that. And here's the award. He said, the grievance filed on behalf of Mr. Billy Stroop is sustained in part. Based upon the particular circumstances presented in this case, it is found that the Postal Service had just cause, as required by Article 16, Section 1 of the agreement, for discipline. However, in my opinion, the appropriate corrective action would be a long-term suspension without back pay to provide Mr. Stroop an opportunity to demonstrate that he can conduct himself within the accepted norms of an industrial work environment. Mr. Stroop's reinstatement shall be subject to a fitness for duty exam. So the arbitrator did hang on to that. Scheduled and paid for by the Postal Service in order to determine if the agreement is fit for duty. The arbitrator will change jurisdiction of this case for 90 days to address any questions or issues concerning the implementation of this award. So, yeah, the arbitrator did bring him back, uh, didn't pay him back pay. But, you know, at the end of the day, we got the man his job back. I told you I caught management lying in there about the PTSD because to me, when you see PTSD, that's something that you hang on to because here we have a gentleman that has gone and fought for his country and he's risked his life to do so. And he's come back into a world that has changed for him. The, the, The world that he left, the life that he left is no longer the same. And it will never be the same. Uh, He's got PTSD now because of his uh, choice to go over there and fight for his country. So for the rest of his days, he will pay for that. Uh, For the rest of his days, he will carry that with him, his choice. And and I'm going to tell you, when I went and, and defended him, one of the greatest guys I've ever met. And, And that's how I knew, hey, something's not right here. Something, something happened on that day that's out of the norm because this guy was a gem of a guy. He was a fantastic young man. And so I knew that we're dealing with something else here. You know, sometimes you go and meet witnesses and they're exactly what you think, assholes. This guy was not it. He was a fantastic young man. So I knew that, that we, you know, we, we need to get him back, get him some help. But anyway... In the contentions, we, he had a statement about his PTSD. Uh, we didn't raise that as a contention, unfortunately, but since he had a statement in there saying, hey, I've put management on notice about PTSD and all these things, I asked the formal step A representative. I said, well, why did you not you know, research and do something about the young man's PTSD? I didn't know he had PTSD. I said, hang on just a second. <laughs> you didn't know he had PTSD? No. He never told me he had PTSD. I never knew it. I said, this is the first time you're hearing about him having PTSD? Sure is. I said, what happened at the Formal A meeting? Well, Formal A meeting, she came in, handed me her contentions, I handed her mine, and and uh, we contended against them and sent it up. So you saw the contentions. 
Yeah. I said, well, go to page 75. What does that state? Well, that's his statement. Read it. I informed management I had PTSD. I said, you just stated that you <laughs> you looked at the contentions. I must have missed that. So we were able to get a lot of stuff in like that. But that's just something that, you know, when you're preparing grievances, when you're looking at things, make sure all of the quiver, all the arrows are in the quiver. Uh, this is a perfect example of that. Put all of the arrows in the quiver. And uh, we probably could have got this guy back without, with all of his back pay. You never know. I mean, you never know. But like I said, if I tell you something, I'm not going to lie to you. If I tell you somebody came back, they came back. But my friends got to laugh out of that. They're like, you, that guy came back to work? I was like, yeah. So just in case there's any doubters, there, there you go. 34135. C34135 if you want to get it and read it, okay? With that being said, let's get into this episode. Another Just Cause Principle. Again, when you're dealing with uh, Just Cause Principles and you're going to address them in my template, and I'll talk about a template here in just a second. But in my template, I would have this at the very top. It's page 26 of the EL 921 handbook. Page 26 of the EL 921 handbook. It's the supervisor's guide to handling grievances. It's the supervisor's guide to handling grievances. And this is how management has told supervisors they're going to handle grievances. Okay, because again, it should be the supervisor handling the grievance. When we meet and should be issuing the discipline, just like in the just cause principles, the last sentence on that first page, it says, these are the things that the supervisor must do. Well, here's the supervisor's guide to handling grievances. So this is, this is powerful. If somebody other than the supervisor is initiating that disciplinary action, I've talked about that a lot, but here it states this, the definition of just cause varies from case to case. But arbitrators frequently divide the question of just cause into six sub-questions and often apply the following criteria to determine whether the action was for just cause. These criteria are the basic considerations that the supervisor uses before initiating disciplinary action. Discipline should not be issued if no is the answer to any of the questions. So if no is the answer to any one of the six sub-questions of just cause. If they didn't meet just one of them, they shouldn't issue the discipline, right? So when we're going through the just cause principles and we're going down through and management has violated just one of them, then we're going to use this language against them right here, page 26 of the L921 handbook. We're going to use that language against them and say, hey, look, this just cause principle, this sub-question right here, management clearly violated that one. And according to their own handbook, they shouldn't have issued this discipline, but they did anyway. Okay, so make sure that that's at the top of your template. Now, I have never discussed template. Some of you may be new shop stewards. Uh, you may be older shop stewards. You may be doing it a while, and you don't have a template. I would suggest getting a template for everything that you deal with. And, and my Formal A has some amazing templates. And if I'm dealing with something that I have not dealt with before, I'll call them. And I'll say, hey, you got a template on opting. Yeah, I got a template on opting. Man, can you send it to me? And then I will <clears throat> change things out. But what a template is, 
is say this EL921. And I'll say the grievant, Corey Walton. The issue, did management violate Article 16 and 19 via Section 115 of the M39 Handbook when they issued letter carrier Corey Walton a letter of warning for unacceptable attendance? And then I'll start my template. And I'll have this language, the EL921 language. I'll have it copied and pasted on there. And then I'll have the six sub-questions on there. And that way I can interchange, you know, if tomorrow it's somebody else, John Doe, I can put John Doe's name in there, same issue, uh, maybe different discipline. And then I'll still have this language. I won't have to change that. I'll still have the six sub-questions, and I'll just have to change out, you know, the language below the sub-questions on how, how we feel like they violated it. So hopefully that makes sense. But that's a template. And so anytime you, it, it saves a lot of time. Anytime you have discipline, you pull up your discipline template. All those things are already pre-done on there, uh, copied and pasted. That way you don't have to spend any time doing that. And you can spend most of the time just researching and seeing how management violated those just cause principles if they did. So that's a template, if you didn't know. All right? So... Let's get to the just cause principle. And this one is a thinking man's just cause principle or thinking woman's just cause principle. It, it, it requires a lot of thinking because some of it just doesn't make sense. But was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself and in line with that usually administered as well as to the seriousness of the employee's past record? And that's the one we're going to deal with. Was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself which tells you what, even if you have progressive discipline, even if somebody has a letter of warning in a seven day and management's going to choose to give them a 14 day, this right here says, was the, was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself? So I, I talked in an earlier episode about somebody hitting a pot beside a mailbox, a customer has put 15 pots beside their mailbox and I go up through there and I'm trying to get around them, reach out, put the mail in the box, pull off and my back bumper hits one of these 15 pots and management says, Hey, that's an accident. That's a 14 day. Well, to me, I'm going to try to beat that. Even though it was an accident, the circumstances surrounding that, what, what happened? I tried to avoid it. The customer had all these pots out there. I thought I had cleared them, and I hit a pot. I would use this. I would use this for that. Was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself? And I would say, no, it's not. This man got a 14-day. Even though it was progressive, he got a 14-day for something that normally would just require a discussion or management going up there and telling the customer, take all these pots away from your mailbox. Uh, so the, it's a thinking man's just cause principle. It requires you to think about discipline, the severity of that discipline, what happened. Uh, if, if I'm stepping out of my vehicle and I step in a hole that I didn't see and sprain my ankle and management disciplines me for that, I would use this. 
Was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself? There was absolutely nothing I could do to avoid what happened. The grass was cut. I didn't see the hole. I'm just walking and stepped in a hole that I didn't see. Management disciplined me anyway, saying that I was being unsafe. Right? Use this. Was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself? Absolutely not. There was absolutely nothing I could do to have avoided what happened to me. I'm walking up to the mailbox. Got my DPS in my hand, got my flats in my arm, my bag on my shoulder. Getting the mail. Mail's in my right hand now, putting it in the mailbox, and a dog jumps out of a bush and bites me. Management disciplines me. I didn't handle that situation like they thought I should. Did you have your spray? I had everything I should have had. I had my spray, had my bag, but I had my hand full of mail, putting it in the box, had my arm with flats, my hands with letters, and a dog jumps out that I didn't see and it bites me. Was the severity of the discipline reasonably related to the infraction itself and in line with what usually administered? That's, that's, <clears throat> I've got two good sites that covered that last part where it says, and in line with that usually administered. I got two good sites on that. And I'll get to those in a second. Because if 10 other people have been bitten by dogs and they've never been disciplined, but yet you're going to discipline me or discipline the CCA or discipline somebody else that had a dog bite because you don't like them, because you don't like their work ethic, because you just don't care for who they are, this right here protects us, right? I hit this pot, but yet there's three other carriers that had similar situations to that, and they weren't disciplined. They were just given instruction, but yet you disciplined me for that. This just cause principle protects us from that. I stepped in a hole. I got disciplined, but yet I had three or four other carriers that had similar situations in the past fell off a porch, stepped off the last step, sprung their ankle. They were never given discipline, yet I was. This one right here protects us from that, right? So it takes a little research. It takes a little time. Uh, you're going to have to go back in your mind, in your database, and say, has anybody ever had this happen to them and not been treated the same? Were they not issued discipline, yet this carrier was? That's what this one's talking about. I got these sites that'll help us out a little bit. First one is uh, case number 04401. 04401. And here's what it states Union witnesses testified to eight specific cases of deviation in which no more than a letter of warning was assessed. Management witnesses questioned only one of them and corroborated most of them. Included was one instance of deviation to go to the bathroom. However, there was not even a formal discussion of the deviation. In another, there was an employee with a terrible record who deviated and was playing video games. Yet, his ultimate discipline was a letter of warning. In fact, management witnesses agreed that no one ever before had been terminated for deviation. In general, Postal arbitrators would overturn discipline if only one example of disparate treatment was proved. In fact, several were referenced by the union. Thus, it is abundantly clear that the disparate treatment in the subject case, standing alone, 
would call for reinstating the grievance with full back pay. So he's th- this arbitrator saying any violation of that is a fatal flaw. This is one of those just cause provisions. If it's violated, it's fatal, and that's what he that's what he wrote. He said it is abundantly clear that the disparate treatment in the subject case, standing alone, would call for reinstating the grievance with full back pay. So no matter what all the other arguments are, this one right here will do it. This one right here, it's going to be good enough for me to overturn this discipline. Here's another case. Case number 01760. 01760. The parties herein are well aware of the general rule that disparate treatment, unequal discipline for similar misconduct, is not looked upon with favor by any arbitrator. Unequal discipline imposed even by a well-meaning but somewhat disorganized employer will consistently be overturned as discriminatory when appealed to arbitration. Those are two fantastic sites. I got both of those out of the Defenses to Discipline book from 1988 that I use all the time. And both of those are beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful language because you're wanting to set precedent with your arbitration sites. So when you hand those to an arbitrator at the end of the hearing... Man, that's beautiful language for an arbitrator because they don't like ruling alone. They like to, to write in their decisions, you know, I agree with arbitrator so-and-so where he opined the following and write it down. Those are two fantastic sites for what we're talking about, okay? The disparate treatment. It goes on to state, as well as to the seriousness of the employee's past record. Now, here's where we got to, this is where we get to thinking, okay, because Obviously, 1610 comes into mind, so we're battling, I'm going to confuse y'all, but we're battling 1610, and we're battling progressive discipline, right? And, and I'll show you what I'm talking about in a minute. We're, we're, we're fixing to battle 1610 and progressive discipline with this language. So bear with me. I'm going to try not to be too confusing. Uh, But it goes on to state, and here's what it states. The following is an example of what arbitrators may consider an inequitable discipline. If an installation consistently issues five-day suspensions for a particular offense, it would be extremely difficult to justify why an employee with a past record similar to that of other discipline employees was issued a 30-day suspension for the same offense. And that's kind of like the decision I just read to you. 04401, 04401, that's kind of like that, right? It goes on, there is no precise definition of what establishes a good, fair, or bad record. Let me read that again, because here's where we're going to get into confusion. There is no precise definition of what establishes a good, fair, or bad record. Now, here's who's going to settle that, an arbitrator. Because I'm going to go in there and I'm going to say, hey, look, this guy has a good record. Uh, he's got some discipline. Uh, he's had some in the past, but he's got a good record. What's management going to say? He's got an abhorrible record. It's terrible record. You know, we can't have people working here that just won't obey the rules, that just refuse to obey the rules. We can't have them working here. It's a terrible record. So you know who's going to decide that? An arbitrator. <laughs> so... We're going to plead that he's got a great record. Management's going to say that he has a terrible record. And arbitrator's going to define that for us. Okay? So when it says, 
There's no precise definition of what establishes a good, fair, or bad record. Arbitrator's going to decide that one. Reasonable judgment must be used. Now, when have you ever known management to have reasonable judgment? So again, we're talking to the arbitrator there. Management will never have reasonable judgment. Never have I had an informal, formal meeting where management was reasonable. They're going to hold on to their position no matter what you show them, no matter the due process violations, no matter anything. Labor's told them to discipline this guy. They're going to they're going to sink with that. It's going to be a ball and chain on them. They're going to go to the bottom of the lake on that before they are reasonable about it because labor has told them that this person is going to be disciplined and they're going to go to hell with that. So reasonable judgment must be used. That's never talking about management. We're going to plead to the arbitrator about that and show how management was not reasonable. Does that make sense? Now, here's where we get confusing. Employees' record of previous offenses may never be used to establish guilt in a case you presently have under consideration, but it may be used to determine the appropriate disciplinary penalty. So here we're going to get into some 1610 and some progressive discipline. I'll read that again to you. An employee's record of previous offenses may never be used to establish guilt in a case you presently have under consideration what that's talking about obviously if if discipline has been rescinded and expunged article 1610 will trump that language right there if they try to say hey look this discipline has been rescinded and expunged but he's he's been disciplined for this in the past so he's a well well aware of what he's supposed to do that's not talking about that what this is talking about is if i have a letter warning in a seven day for similar infractions and they use that as the sole determination to sell this 14 day if they say Corey has a problem with this in the past look he's done this and he's done this he's been disciplined for it so this is warranted no that's not what that's talking about what this is talking about is you can't convict me because i've had an issue with that in the past You still have to have just cause and you still have to prove that I was guilty of this infraction alone. Does that make sense to y'all? You have to prove that I was guilty of this. You cannot say, look, he's been disciplined for this in the past. He just don't get it. And here we are again. You can't do that to me. Those other two, they don't even mean anything. You've got to prove, you've got to have to prove that you had just cause to discipline me for this right here. So if management comes in and it's like, look, we're, we told Corey twice now, he just don't get it. And so this is warranted. Then they make that contention on that just cause principle right there. That management is relying solely on my past offenses to warrant this discipline or to justify this discipline, right? You still have to have just cause. But this last bit is what it's talking about where it says, but it may be used to determine the appropriate disciplinary penalty. If I am guilty and they do prove that, then yeah, I'm going to get a 14 day. So if I got a letter warning in a seven day for something similar, they do prove that I violated that. They meet their just cause principles. Uh, I'm guilty. Then yeah, if they say I need a 14 day, that's what I'm getting. That's what I'm getting. So that's what that's talking about right there, where it says, but it may be used to determine the appropriate disciplinary penalty. 
So when it says an employee's record of previous offenses may never be used to establish guilt in a case you presently have under consideration, we talked about that. You can't use things against me in the past. You have to prove my, your position on this one. You have to prove it. But if you do prove it, it may be used to determine the appropriate disciplinary penalty. So if you do prove it, I've had a, seven, a letter warning on a seven-day, then I'm fixing to get me a 14-day, right? I hope I made sense in all this. It's a thinking man's just cause principle. And, and it's very similar, if you think about it, to is the rule consistently and equitably enforced? Of course, that one's talking about the rule. This one's talking about discipline. Is the rule equitably enforced? And this one's talking about is discipline basically equitably enforced. So there's a difference, but there, there's some similarities there as well. It's a brief episode. Uh, went through that one very expeditiously, but I, I think that it's a, it's a great one. Uh, all of them are great, obviously. But uh, with those sites that I, that I gave you, it, it kind of gives you a little blueprint of what arbitrators are thinking about, what they're looking for. And this just cause principle. But it's it's also the perfect one. You know, when I talk about El Cori and El Cori, uh, when I talk about El Cori and El Cori, uh, the just cause where it states that the security of a worker in his job, some of the best language you'll ever hear about defining just cause, the security of a worker in his job. This one right here, this just cause principle is a perfect example of that. The security of a worker in his job. I'm secure in my job. I'm secure in the fact that you're not going to treat me any different than you are anybody else. If you're going to treat five other people one way, you're not going to treat me any differently because of whatever. I've, I've always said it. If you don't like the color of my skin, you don't like uh, who I choose to, to date, if you don't like my religion, it doesn't matter. I'm securing my job because of just cause. And this is one of the best ones to illustrate that. This one here. Very quick episode, but it's a, it's a great just cause principle. You know, especially if you can find uh, where management has violated it, those sites that I, that I just told you, write those down in your contentions. I write sites down in my contentions all the time. I informulate contentions. But the next uh, episode will be, was the disciplinary action taken in a timely manner? That'll be a good one because uh, you'll be surprised at the amount of arbitrators that don't consider that. Uh, but we'll sell them on it, and, and I'm going to tell you how in the next episode, okay? Y'all take care of yourself. As always, thank you for listening. I hope it's helped. And to my friends who doubted me right there on that, there you go. If I tell you somebody came back to work, they came back to work. I'll give you my word on that. All right. God bless y'all. I love you. Y'all take care of yourselves, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. All right. Bye-bye.